0: I've got people who, who really have liked my books and they may think I've taken a turn for the worse by taking on climate alarmism so squarely. My guest today is John Pepper. I'm an author of four novels and counting. My fifth one is gonna commence very shortly. I've spent 23 years in the newspaper business, seven years as a reporter, 10 as a columnist, covering business and politics for the Detroit News. That was an experience that allowed me to get behind the scenes of power centers around the world, which I found personally very engaging and often entertaining. Uh, The basics of journalism at the time were who, what, when, where, how, and why, which I thought was the most important question. And that's the question that really animates me to this day. and infuses my writing. I've also been a publisher of a magazine and website covering nanotechnology and its commercialization. I spent five years as a communications executive in the auto industry, another seven years as an executive in the energy industry. And uh, those are eye-opening experiences around how things get done in business and sometimes how they don't. My own firm for the past nine years uh, in New York City uh, and in Washington, D.C., handles all kinds of challenging business issues uh, that come across virtually every industry. And I'm I'm writing books, of course, as you know, that leverage all that experience of all these different experiences that I've had to take readers behind the scenes and offer them a different kind of perspective they might not otherwise see. My latest book is Missy's Twitch, which comes out this month, and it's already available through booksellers everywhere. Um, it's in paperback, hardcover, and ebook, uh, releasing everywhere around the world. It seems to be a, there seems to be a good b- bit of interest in northwestern Europe because they're ahead of the United States on a lot of the issues that are discussed in this book. But it's also for sale in places like Hong Kong, Taiwan, Estonia, Brazil, Romania, Luxembourg. So. Like Johnny Cash, just been everywhere, man. It's part of a series called Fossil Feuds, and Fossil Feuds it centers on an embattled industrial company and uh, the family that is behind it. They're called the Crows. The family's business is on headquarters, headquarters on Broad Street in downtown Manhattan, right behind Standard Oil headquarters. The Crow family is fighting competitors, government regulators, activists, trying to drive them out of business because they're using fossil fuels. And as you know, that's evil in today's society. So their chief nemesis is a group called the Planetistas, they're activists, and also President Dewey Fenwick's administration. Their business is energy, refining pipelines, power generation. And uh, with so much pressure on their heads, they feel a need to find a transition away from fossil fuels And that leads to a high-profile effort in fusion, which is covered largely in the third book of my series called Green Goddess. Critics, as you know, Tom, may see causation between fossil fuels and climate change. They never seem to see any connection between fossil fuels and a vastly improved quality of life over the past 120 years. They only see evil. So Missy's twitch is a story of a young woman. That's Missy. And the book opens with Missy's visit to a therapist. Here's a a brief from the book. It took only a moment for the psychologist known as Dr. Iz to diagnose the patient entering her office on New York City's Upper West Side on a hot summer morning. Missy Mayburn Crow had opportunity written all over her. With a mess of brown tresses and a multitude of body piercings, the wealthy heiress to an oil and gas fortune wore her emotional distress on her sleeveless arms one of which was covered with dull blots of incomprehensible ink. Were they statements of rebellion, expressions of alienation, cat pictures? Soon enough, Dr. Iz would find out all that had gotten under, into, and on top of Missy's skin. So she's a sixth generation uh, member of her family. After Homer Crow, the great industrialist, she's a graduate of an Ivy League school. But she studied gender studies, which have proven to be virtually useless in her uh, work at, at Crow Power. Um, she's what you'd call woke. She's very guilty, overwhelmed. She develops this strange twitch. And Dr. is diagnosed with this as climatosis. All of Missy's friends get this, or almost all of them, except for one holdout named Blair. They're highly suggestive. They get this virus, and it goes viral uh, through the help of TikTok and social, other social media. The White House seizes upon this and says they can use this for their agenda on promoting the climate crisis. And that's why they, of course, they need to intervene in the economy, generate donations, and target subsidies to their pals. Missy, to them, is proof of the toll of climate change. And she's enlisted to attack the industry, including her family company, which is headed by her mother, Lindsay Harper Crow. I see all this, this whole story as a, an entertaining vehicle for a story about climate alarmism, how it happens, why it happens, and whether we should really be scared or, or not. So my inspiration for this uh, is a story from my own backyard, quite literally, Uh, and I wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal last year. After Hurricane Sandy wreaked havoc on New York City, locals found an opportunity to rush expensive projects to protect us from future superstorms 30, 50, 70 years out. This project in, in my area in New York is a microcosm of what's going on all over the world. It's the same playbook over and over, and I'm sure anyone on this podcast has seen this before. Climate change emergency is cited. Money is commandeered. Contractors are signed. Political donations are guaranteed in this uh, non-virtuous circle. Opposition is trampled because you have to trust the science. It's all for the greater good. And in my case, this will cost a billion dollars to rip up portions of my neighborhood to make it so-called resilient to climate change. Sadly, we're not resilient to politicians. So uh, this is an interesting little thing Uh, for those who can see this uh, uh, via the podcast. That is a picture of New York Magazine after Hurricane Sandy. My neighborhood is the one down in the lower left part of the New York Magazine cover. There in darkened Manhattan was an area that is virtually untouched by the hurricane. It's brightly lit and looks like the Emerald City in the Wizard of Oz. And uh, yet somehow we have to rip it all up for a billion dollars and start over again. And in case you don't get the point of how bad this could be, The photo on the right is an example or shows you what could happen, in which case, we won't need any climate resiliency, we all need an ARC, and uh, hopefully I'm one of the two that gets on board. So, uh, that caused me to do some research, which I found very unsettling, to use a term I'll talk about later. And among the uh, research I did was I talked to some friends, some of whom were scientists, and uh, they direct me, directed me to skeptics, and they sent me articles and links and so forth. And I, I saw things from uh, Richard Lindzen and Happer, and I kind of discovered this whole underground of scientists who actually are not part of this supposed 97%. And I found Stephen Coonan's book, Unsettled, which was very helpful to me. I also looked into a history. Has this happened before? Have people gotten sort of uh, crazed by some sort of environmental scares? And it goes back a thousand years and it actually has some roots um, into the Middle Ages. So in the book, Missy's psychologist did some research and this is another blurb from the book. Dr. Iz found a possible corollary from the Middle Ages when groups of people from across Europe concerned about their environment would inexplicably dance without stopping until they collapsed, sometimes breaking their ribs or even dying. There were numerous reported outbreaks of choreomania over hundreds of years, with some people decorating their hair with garlands, parading around naked, and engaging in sexual intercourse in public squares. It had an end of the world feel to it that sounded much like Occupy Wall Street encampment, but with a medieval flair. So I also did some research into climate therapists, what's going on there, and much to my alarm, Uh, I'm surprised. It was a huge industry and growing rapidly. Young people, uh, quite predictably, are freaking out. A Lancet study surveying 10,000 young people aged 16 to 25 in 10 countries found that more than half of them felt sadness, anxiety, anger, and guilt about climate change. That's exactly, of course, what proponents want them to feel. And then also there were there was Twitter X and podcasts, and I found this huge community. Thank, thankfully, um, Twitter had really opened up under Elon Musk, and people were easier to find. Uh, it's, been, it's been really a bit of a godsend for me. And I found podcasts like yours, Tom, uh, which included, I watched uh, Willie Soon on there last week, who made a very uh, poignant, uh, pointed remark. And he talked about the IPCC, the arm of the United Nations, said, IPCC is interested in an answer that cannot be questioned. We are more interested in a question that cannot be answered. I thought that put it very well. And uh, the bottom line for me was that I found out, as Missy does, that this is an extremely complex issue that's just not well understood. So, where do we go from there? Um, the uh, I started writing. I typically write at 4 o'clock in the morning. I still have a company to run, a small company. but. I, I get writing at 4 o'clock in the morning, right till about 6.30, uh, take a swim, get breakfast, go to work. But anyway, I started my story, and I wanted to tell a story that brings to life what I see. And I wanted to put this whole issue of climate alarmism into a context that might be amusing and bring in other people outside of the scientific community to kind of understand this. The story is really exemplified by the conflict between Missy and her mother, Lindsay, the chair of the company. And uh, Lindsay has assigned Missy, her daughter, to help advance the company's efforts in fusion, but Missy's not showing up for work. She's got this twitch. So she copes, Missy does, by taking her friends on a company jet to Nantucket. That's uh, where they chill out and try to get away from all the anxiety caused by climate change. So this is also from the book. A drinking game suggested by Missy's childhood chum, Blair, was for the five young women lounging about to take turns downing a shot of tequila, followed by a can of White Claw hard seltzer, as a chaser every time GNN News mentioned climate change in its coverage of a hurricane in Puerto Rico, the heat wave on the East Coast of the United States, or even the rainout of the Mets baseball game in Pittsburgh. Mention of a climate emergency merited two shots, a climate, epo- uh, climate a catastrophe called for three, if any of the news readers or reporters said climate apocalypse, one had to take one large gulp right from the bottle. Missy fretted there was a good possibility the group would run out of booze before long. Since there was virtually no news, the reporters couldn't tie to climate. The ladies didn't have to wait long to get guzzling. Now, that's a part of the book. I say to anyone listening to this podcast, I don't recommend this game. If we all played it while we were watching the news, we'd be hammered all day long. So there's that. Uh, What I found was, and what I deduced was that we're not in Kansas anymore. When it comes to climate alarmism, anything goes. And as I'll discuss, there's nothing that can not be tied to climate change in the minds of the alarmists. And we'll talk about how that's not an accident. In fact, that's deed by design. My skepticism comes naturally, and not just because of my background as a reporter, but I come from Michigan. That's where I grew up. And we had extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme storms, sometimes all on the same day. Alarmists act like it was all invented last week. In Missy's Twitch, there's a scene at a restaurant where they're asked, where Lindsay, the chair of the company, is asked whether she thought the climate wasn't changing. This is how she responds to her companion. Of course it's changing, she said, between clenched teeth. It always has and it always will. But if they act like severe weather was invented 20 years ago, They're wrong, did nobody ever see the Wizard of Oz? She took a sip from her cup. You know, I take this stuff very seriously because I have to. I bring in people all the time to educate our leadership team about climate change. We gather every month in the boardroom to hear from scientists from MIT and Caltech and Harvard, as well as our own research team. It's critical for our business to know what's going on out there and plan accordingly. We can't function without some intel on this issue. She stabbed the tabletop with her finger. But here's the problem. Based on what these people are telling us privately, we don't know what's going on exactly. There are too many variables we don't understand, can't measure, and can't compute. And yet, you wouldn't know that there was any uncertainty on this issue, Tom, uh, because uh, that's just not the way it's presented. So how did that happen? Well, it's scaremongering is a public service, is what I've concluded. And uh, what I see out there is something called the green wall. I'm not talking about Fenway Park for baseball fans. It's this wall of climate info and misinfo that skeptics can't get past or over. And the main bricks are these, media, search engines, entertainment, literature, politics, education, business. This green wall is all moving in one direction. The result is the skeptics haven't lost the science as much as they've lost the culture. The culture is all one-sided. That may be 97%. And all these bricks in the green wall support the same conclusion. Humans are destroying the climate and it's going to come back and kill us all. This wall was constructed using a design principle that works effectively um, in communications. Uh, So-called, the acronym is KISS, keep it simple, stupid. Take an incredibly complex topic with a million variables, then you distill it down to one component, greenhouse gases. Then you distill it further to CO2. Then you make it all about fossil fuels, mined and burned by humans. See, it's easy. When you skip further analysis, the science is settled. 97% agree. The planet is at stake. No cost is too high, no inconvenience is too much of a burden, and no freedom is too precious to sacrifice to save our one and only planet. That's the working theory. So how did this happen? Here's the media on climate. There's always cause for alarm. This, uh, this lays it out pretty succinctly here. Los Angeles Times front page, screaming headline, California's climate apocalypse. This is the first brick in the green wall and maybe, maybe one of the most important. The media is more from reporting news to activism to protect the planet. They say ludicrous things like, we need to hold the temperature down to 1.5 degrees. So somebody might think, we can do that, really? I just turned that knob over there a scooch? Uh, how does that work exactly? Well, the media issue is capsulized in the drinking game mentioned earlier between Missy and her friends watching TV news and drinking and shots every time they hear about a climate crisis. Here's another aspect. Here's another continuation of that scene in the book. In just one half hour, they'd already gone around the room twice. Now, a sodden correspondent dramatically demonstrating how hard it was to hold his ground amid gyrating palm trees in San Juan shook his head in frustration as he reported on Hurricane Ralph the Drag Queen. The first storm to incorporate the World Meteorological Association switch to non-binary names for hurricanes. The correspondent asserted the storm could have been prevented if only the world took the climate emergency seriously. Two shots. I'm begging all of your listeners out there, the reporter wailed. You must do something to dial down global warming. Anything, anything is better than nothing at all. Well, Missy knew exactly what to do. There was no twitch in her arm as she licked the salt off the back of her hand threw down a shot of tequila and closed her eyes as she sucked on a lime, followed quickly by another shot. It's the end of the world, she wailed. So I saw an example of this just last week on my own local TV, and first I had my phone and I took a shot of the TV. Here was a story. This is a new feature on WABC TV in New York, and it's called Weathering Tomorrow, and they're very proud to introduce this. They said that um, we have this new feature, and here it is. Here's this report. Nationwide, 20.8 million people are at high risk of flooding. And when is this risk going to be? Well, they don't mention that in this, in this screen, but you look at it and you listen carefully, and it's 2053 they're talking about. 2050. last I looked, this is 2023. Anyway, the, um, so what's behind this? Well, it's insurance. That's what's driving this story, the insurance industry. Um, You remember Ned Ryerson, the annoying uh, insurance salesman in Groundhog Day? He never quit pitching Bill Murray. Well, you can expect the same thing here. It's not insurance they're going to sell you. If it's not insurance, they're going to sell you something else. It's an EV, or it's a 15-minute city, or it's eating insects, or whatever it is they're they're fainting up lately. But the climate crisis is now our own Groundhog Day. It's relived endlessly, thanks to this green wall, and it doesn't happen by accident. Uh, this is something that I think is quite interesting. I saw Steve Coonan mention this in a, in a speech, and it's making the climate connection. It's a website called Covering Climate Now. And this is where they call this public spirited journalism. They have 460 media partners around the world, and it's a hallelujah chorus sung by CBS, NBC, PBS, Reuters, Bloomberg, AFP, Scientific American, no surprise there, Nature and uh, Teen Vogue, among others. Of course, you got to get them while they're young and impressionable because kids make great props at Save the Planet rallies. So uh, this is sponsored by the Columbia Journalism Review, the same university that awards the Pulitzer Prize the highest, most prestigious awards in journalism. And uh, they give out awards, this, this website, for covering the climate crisis. And they say things that are very encouraging to journalists and say, no matter what your specialty is, politics, business, health, housing, education, etc. There are strong climate connections to highlight. They also warn them against people like the folks who are listening to this podcast. They say, platforming climate deniers in an effort to balance our coverage not only misleads the public, it is inaccurate. In the year 2023, there is simply no good faith argument against climate science. Of course, that's as they define it. And then they're instructive, which I think you'll find this interesting, Tom. They say stories about extreme heat, for example, are better illustrated by images of frazzled people at a cooling center than by fun in the sun photos of beachgoers splashing in the waves. Nothing good can come from climate change of any kind. There's no fun here. You've got to be miserable, and it's the media's job to show exactly how miserable people can be and scare the bejesus out of them. So... Start spreading the news. Make sure that you say things like scientists agree that climate change drives extreme weather, like today's high temperatures. Um, Mm. Make sure you say things like heat waves like this one are now more common and more intense as a result of human-caused climate change in a warming world. And they say human-caused climate change isn't solely to blame for extreme weather, but it supercharges normal weather patterns like steroids. So this goes on and on, and I, I, um, it, it's, it's really interesting because you see it reflected throughout all the press coverage on any time there's bad weather, they seize on this, they jump on it, and they say, they use all this language that we're seeing on this website. Blair, who's the outlier in this friend among uh, Missy's friends, <clears throat> was pressed by her friend saying, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you with us? And she said, I don't think anyone here has an understanding of geological cycles, or the fact that we've had many periods of warming and cooling over millions of years. I'm not sure we understand clouds or how to measure their influence on climate. What about solar activity and other greenhouse gases besides CO2? Some argue we have too much carbon dioxide. Others argue we're getting dangerously low considering how important it is to vegetation. I doubt anyone here understands the cooling effect caused by aerosols. Aerosols, Dr. Iz asked? Oh, she's talking about hairspray, Gina said confidently. Well, not exactly. But um, anyway, that's, the, that's about the depth of uh, understanding for some of Missy's friends on this issue. The media has approved language on this. Uh, this is from another group called Climate Central. And they say things like, this is language for journalists. This is directly taken from their site. More frequent and intense extreme heat, the deadliest natural hazard in the U.S. is a direct result of a warming planet. So they uh, they have found that the media's response to COVID, this won't surprise you either, Tom, but the media's response to COVID-19 provides a useful model, they say. Guided by science, journalists have described the pandemic as an emergency, chronicled its devastating impacts, called out disinformation, and told audiences how to protect themselves. We need the same commitment to the climate story, and I think we're seeing that certainly play out. And here's an example of that Anyone who's listening to this in, uh, in Europe, and especially in the UK, where the BBC is famous for these, these burned out uh, maps of weather, shows areas not just being warm, but incinerated. And it's just, it's just amazing. I mean, this is what climate change has done already. It's just burned these places to a crisp. Um, but apparently, that's what they, that's what they think is, uh, is appropriate. And Climate Central admits this on their website. They say we collaborate widely with TV meteorologists, journalists, and other respected voices to reach audiences across diverse geographies and beliefs um, to generate thousands of local storylines. So they're helping to generate these things. They they're getting all kinds of mentions all over the world, fifty thousand plus, and in one hundred and seventy countries. So they're they're thinking on this is pervasive, and in a land of uh, you know we're in a we're in a time where. Uh, Journalistic resources are diminished. Newsrooms aren't as big as they used to be. Journalists don't have the time to dig into things the way they might have once upon a time when they can be cut loose for a special project. They need information fast. And these folks are ready with resources and and talking points, ready to go whenever somebody needs them. The big dog in this, of course, is the New York Times, which sets sets up the agenda for most of the mainstream media, the legacy media. And if you Google New York Times Climate Reporter, you'll come up with a long list. This is just the top of my window. But there's a long list of them, and they have stringers all over the world who are covering this particular issue. And um, so what they are doing, though, what's really interesting about this is that Times has morphed from just reporting on this to really push an agenda, to organize summits around climate change, including Climate Forward that was in New York uh, last month to coincide with the UN General Assembly. That's where they brought together world leaders, climate activists, business innovators, scientists together in one room to explore the solutions to the climate crisis and what might come next. Um, I don't think, Tom, you were invited to be one of the members on this, but Michael Bloomberg was, Greenpeace was, American Clean Power Association, they might have some money involved in this, and the CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus, which is apparently an activist organization. The sessions covered... The transition to renewable energy, climate finance, um, both for the energy shift and for mitigation, and rethinking our food systems. So uh, I hope you do like insects. They're coming our way sometime soon. Uh, here was some coverage that mirrors this activism. Outrage and hope on the streets of New York. And what's really interesting is, is how they could still take a nice day. They're, they're, just, they're just killjoys. Sunday in New York was as pleasant as a late summer day can be. But the specter of fires, floods, and storms was on everyone's mind. I mean, what? Can't we just enjoy a nice day anymore? Does it have to be apocalyptic? Anyway, they, this, the story went on to say, and listen to the adjectives they used to describe this. Extreme weather, much of it fueled by climate change, has rattled the globe like never before. Enormous wildfires burned in Canada and Europe. Record heat seared the United States, spiking ocean temperatures, bleached corals. Against this apocalyptic backdrop, world leaders, executives, and activists have descended on New York, okay, for this nice day. Um, so they did say, they did allow that on, that there's a good news, bad news thing here. On one hand, the good news is the Green Revolution is genuinely underway in the New York Times view with trillions of dollars being spent to reduce planet warming emissions. The bad news, on the other hand, is the destructive effects of climate change are now squarely upon us and poised to get worse, scientists predict. And who do they quote first among scientists? Al Gore. The basis for both the hope and fear has increased, he says. So uh, they even tied the Capitol riot from July 2021 to climate change and said that um, that the... uh, There's a long and sad history of efforts by industries and interest groups to reshape the discussion of climate science and undercut the overwhelming evidence that greenhouse gases produced by humans are leading us to a global catastrophe. So nothing can escape the climate story in the Times view. There there are a few exceptions out there. This is one that I see. Um, I subscribe to Michael Schellenberger's feed, which is interesting. He's really good at, at getting behind the scenes on what's really going on and that never gets covered in the legacy media. But this particular story talked about, uh, here's a quote from it. Obama and Biden had sought and won $150 billion in new federal money for green en- energy, $90 billion from the stimulus. The stimulus money wasn't evenly distributed, but rather clustered around donors to President Barack Obama and the Democratic Party. At least 10 members of Obama's finance committee and more than 12 of his fundraising bundlers who raised a minimum of $100,000 from Obama, benefited from 16.4 billion of the 20.5 billion in stimulus loans. So 80% of the stimulus loans went to their friends who were raising money for them. I mean, this is just one more example of this little circle and how it goes round and round. Uh, another brick in the green wall is the is search engines. And I think a lot of you have probably heard uh, this, heard this clip from UN Under Secretary General, Melissa Fleming, Who talked about how they were getting the UN folks were looking at Google and doing searches and finding that they didn't like the results. So she said, if you Google climate change now, at the top of the search, you'll get all kinds of UN resources because they partnered, the UN partnered formally with Google to make sure their information is first. And presto, there they are. Climate change. Whoa, right at the top of the right at the top of the search list. Of course, we've seen this kind of collusion before. I thought this was interesting, too. If you search things like climate change denial, you find out that it's dismissal or unwarranted doubt that contradicts the scientific consensus on climate change. Those promoting denial use rhetorical tactics to give the appearance of a scientific controversy where there is none. So I'm sorry for any of you who are listening to this who think there's um, uh, there's some controversy here or there's some disagreement. There is not. It's official so just shut up. That's their point of view. Now you have, uh, so I did another one. I said, I was looking for climate change contrarians. This is why Twitter has been so valuable. It's because they actually, I can find people. I mean, I can find you, Tom, and then I can find who follows you. And then I get suggestions and I get more and more. And it's, it's been really interesting and really helpful. Uh, and that's how I learned a lot about uh, some, of, some of the things that were going on. But I did climate change contrarians on Bing, not Google, and it said that uh, 97% of the scientists agree, which you, your folks have debunked on these podcasts already. Um, I thought this was interesting at the end. They dismissed the contrarians because they're age 65 or older. And I thought, well, why would that be? Maybe they've seen bad weather before. Uh, maybe they're not looking for uh, government funding for a grant. Uh Maybe they've, uh, you know, maybe they're not worried about tenure. There could be other reasons for that. Uh, I think their their implication is we're just just senile and we don't know what's going on. So take take that to the bank. Um, Another brick in the wall, entertainment. Hooray for Hollywood. This is hopeful, I hope, for all of you to understand that there are 10 climate change movies to watch in 2023. And oh, they got such entertainment. There's number one on their list is Don't Look Up which uh, likens a fast-moving comet about to destroy Earth to climate change. So, comet destroying Earth, temperature rising maybe a degree, um, pretty much the same thing. Number three on their list, the day the Earth stood still. Aliens come to save the planet and all its species from, you know who, humans, that bad species. Number eight on their list, the day after tomorrow, they call this this 2004 masterpiece by Roland Emmerich. Number nine. I'm surprised it's down this low, An Inconvenient Truth. The film concludes with Al Gore stressing how each one of us is a cause of global warming, but the solutions are in our hands. So maybe we should just all get on with dying, and uh, that would decrease the surplus population and help Al out of this jam. Uh, naturally, I make fun of Hollywood's pretensions and Missy's Twitch. I have a producer talking about in depth about his movie and pitching it in the White House and getting some funding for it. His movie is called Wrath of Sheba, Climate Aj- Avenger. Climate Avenger. There it is. So um, entertain- this is all entertainment if you want to call it that. Not everyone thought Day After Tomorrow was such a masterpiece. The critics thought it uh, emitted some greenhouse gases like methane because it was a stinker. Um, only 45% actually liked it. And uh, still it grossed 186 million which is not bad for disaster film. In literature... There's, there's so, there are so many novels about climate change or climate change at the center of the story that they actually have their own genre. It's called cli-fi. As a, you know, you got sci-fi, and now you have cli-fi. And these books are all, they're, they're apocalyptic, they're mournful, they hope that mankind will finally come to its senses. So you have things like bewilderment, um, this one book. At, at its heart lies the question, how can we tell our children the truth about this beautiful, impaired planet? Okay, that's one. Uh, Legend is the first um, dystopian trilogy. It's set in a future where cataclysmic environmental events cause society to collapse. These are all set in the future because none of this ever happens. I mean, even predict, projecting this for, you know, how many years? 30, 40, 50 years. American War tells the future history of a second U.S. Civil War that begins when northern states outlaw fossil fuels. I think they're already starting to do that, so. The protagonist and her family try to find safety in a world altered by climate change. A uh, future of the living God set in Minnesota. Tom, you'll appreciate that. It's a dystopian future. It tells the story of a Native American mother-to-be making her way in a world dramatically shaped by human-caused climate change. And the High House, which is on the slide, tells the story of four people brought together by a climate scientist. So there aren't some heroic climate scientists out there, attempting to make a sanctuary in high ground away from the climate disaster. Now you have it's uh, another genre, which is contrarian cli-fi. It's, I call it rye cli-fi. And this is the entire collection of contemporary novels that take a skeptical view about the climate crisis. This is it. Count them. One. Anyway, um, maybe, Missy's Twitch, uh, Missy is kind of lonely out there on the shelf, uh, maybe that's why she has a Twitch, but hopefully, over time, there'll be some more company out there, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Uh, fortunately, in nonfiction, it is still debatable, and um, Steve Coonan's book, Unsettled, has done extremely well. came out in 2021, it's Amazon Top 5 in climatology, uh, weather, environmental uh, science. And uh, many other nonfiction books in this area are doing pretty well, too. So it's it's quite good. I sent Missy's Twitch to to Dr. Kuhn and I didn't know him, but I told him his book had influenced mine, and I wanted to take a look at it. And he did. He read it, and he said, he said, it's an easy and enjoyable read that I suspect will also be educational for many. It's great, wry capture of current stereotypes, as well as some barely disguised personalities currently in the news as though Ayn Rand and Gary Steingart, a satirist, had collaborated to write a story about climate and energy. So very kind of uh, Dr. Koonin, but I continue to follow his work and and, uh, as well as many others on that list at Amazon. So the politics is another brick in this wall, and uh, it depends on where you are and where you live. Europe is ahead of the rest of the world in realizing the costs of this big crusade. Germany's uh, Germany's already deindustrializing in some ways. and Now the UK is suddenly backing off some of its more ambitious aspects of net zero. The U.S. is not there yet because I don't think we fully felt this. I don't think we fully understand exactly what's going on. And uh, I've got a scene in, um, in Missy's Twitch where President Dewey Fenwick is talking to some of his donors, and he says, now some of my friends in Congress say, Dewey, old boy, you can't do that. You can't shut down our nuclear facilities, our coal plants, our gas plants. We don't have enough electricity from renewables. We never will. Well, okay, that's their opinion. But see, that's why I'm planning to ask Congress for a trillion dollars in clean, green energy to provide cash to struggling companies like yours that make windmills, solar panels, and electric cars that provide insurance and financing and marketing to the fast-growing climate industry. We're calling my spending proposal the Healthy Families Act so that people don't get the idea we're wasting their money on some climate boondoggle. He chuckled as if that were far-fetched. And if for some unforeseen reason we can't produce all the electricity we need, then by God, we're just going to have to pick and choose our priorities, which should scare the hell out of all of us. So here's another aspect of 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 our politics, competing priorities. On the left, for those who can see this, there's a picture of Windbreaker Joe with a baseball cap on and a bullhorn, on the streets of uh, Detroit, where they're striking, they, uh, the UAW is striking against the auto companies, largely because their jobs are going to be eliminated by this electrical vehicle mandate. Uh, that's not the only reason, but that's a big reason for it. And uh, a few hours later, they're, so Biden spends 12 minutes on the picket line showing his unstinting support for these guys who are going to lose their jobs. And then he goes off for his real audience, puts on a suit and tie, gets aboard Air Force One, flies out to the Bay Area for what the LA Times calls three fundraising events in some of the swankiest neighborhoods of Silicon Valley and San Francisco. Well, who do you think he's appealing to there? The same people who want to put these guys out of business on the other side. So anyway, this is all, this is all how it works. Um, pay no attention to what's going on over here. Just pay attention to what I'm telling you now. And uh, in politics, this is a whole of government uh, effort to to push this climate agenda. It's in every department. And in fact, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, this is a modern American industrial strategy with a much more assertive federal government in guiding investment, energy, and trade. From the book, I have a scene where the uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is discussing this issue with... With of climate change, with the president, General Sherry Flowerday proposed banning the use of weapons that have a negative impact on climate. Well, don't they all? The president asked. Pretty much, he said. So he said, "What would we use to defend our nation?" General Flowerday looked at him blankly. All we've determined so far, sir, is the kind of weapons we can't use, not what we can. Many of the weapons currently in use today have massive carbon footprints, so obviously they're out. The president pressed further. What does that leave us? Slingshots? pea shooters? The general stared at him. The president shook his head and said, look, here's the deal, general. What if the bad guys don't give a howdly-doodly about climate change and they use something like, I don't know, bombs? The general declared imperiously. Then they're on the wrong side of history. The president squinted. Not if they're alive and we're dead. So there you go. There's the future of our defense industry. Uh, we're getting near, uh, near the end of this presentation. They've got a couple more of these to go. One is education, which is uh, this photo showing kids holding a sign saying, you will die of old age, we will die of climate change. How exactly climate change, cause of death, climate change. I don't see that coming on a death certificate anytime soon, but, but they do. They're at Columbia. Of course they see it. Columbia is uh, pushing this whole education, uh, making climate education, in their words, a mandatory part of the national curriculum. So far, 7,000 colleges and universities have signed a letter to the UN declaring a climate emergency. New Jersey and Connecticut require by law that climate change be taught in schools. New Jersey schools are required to teach that climate change across all subjects, including gym. Uh, Would they show any charts in gym? Would they compare observable data to model data? Would they discuss all the different variables that may have an impact? No, of course not. Uh, They say that, but what they want to do is they want to move behavior. And if 16% of secondary school students around the world studied climate change, it would result in cutting almost 19 gigatons of CO2 by 2050. So again, it all redounds down to CO2, fossil fuels, etc. Keeping it simple, stupid, even for those who are being very educated, supposedly. So as for the last uh, brick in this wall, it's uh, business resistance is futile, as we show this man waving a white flag and in, uh, in a suit. For the older industries, I mean, this could be a whole presentation itself, though, how the business uh, is reacting to this, but the, the basic highlights are for older industries, you get rewarded for good behavior with subsidies and tra- tax breaks to transition to some green new future. For bad uh, behavior, you get very uh, draconian regulations, and you're treated like a political pinata. You're polluting. You're resisting. You're, you're hooking us all to a sick addiction. Any new industries, uh, this can be a wonderful thing, because disruption is their friend. It creates opportunity. And you can get in on the rulemaking. You can help decide the right technology that the government decides to mandate, and you can become part of this massive success story. You're creating a billion new green jobs and you're gonna make this bright new future and so on. Uh, there's a famous thing in business about how to create successful business called the blue water strategy. And it's that you create the market, you dominate it. And uh, the classic example of that is Henry Ford and the Model T, which he introduced in, in uh, 1908. And while everyone else was making a car for the rich people, he made it for the masses. Dominated for 20 years, and uh, Ford remains still working on that momentum even today. So in in conclusion, uh, I would just say this. Uh, I just urge everyone to, you know, we need to keep pushing for answers on the science side. There's a lot of still good science work going on that's not corrupted by government funds that say, here's the conclusion. Now go find some science to back it up. Let's keep pushing for that. Let's demand more in the way of cost-benefit analysis. What exactly are we getting for all this money and all this effort and all this inconvenience? Um, encourage dissonance in our culture, in movies, literature, media, and politics. We need more of that. We need to break out of this, out of this, out of the, the circles that we're in, and, and expand what we know to other people. I hope Missy's Twitch can make a uh, contribution in its own way, uh, making people understand that some of the nonsense we hear should not be taken quite so seriously. And secondly, by making people question what they hear, ask why, don't assume the experts know what they're talking about. Many times what we're hearing is simply repeating, people simply repeating what they've heard or what they think is politically expedient. And so I, I hope you all get a chance to pick up the book and, and, and that you enjoy it. And
1: Tom, thank you so much for, uh, for hosting me today. It's been great. All right, thank you. One question is, looking at your book, it says that uh, she uh, goes into a Chrome browser and types in climate anxiety therapist" and founds, uh, she finds more than 100 people working as climate anxiety therapists. Is that a real thing? Yes, it is.
0: It, it absolutely is. And it's um, it's they have an association even of climate therapists. And if you look at, so what do they do? What do they tell people? Well, a lot of what they do is they try to make them feel better about their anxiety. And tell them, you know, you're a good person because you care so much. You're really, this is a, this is a sign of your virtue. So uh, they uh, they're mostly enabling is what they do. They don't. Nobody says, hey, read the read Unsettled by Steve Coonan, You might relax, or uh, you know, listen listen to uh, listen to Tom Nelson's podcast, and you might you might hear a different
1: different story here. All right, very good. Uh, do you have any more books uh, on, on, in the hopper that you're going to be writing? Yes, I'm gonna write so I've got this fossil feud
0: series and I've got one more, I'm thinking just one more that'll kind of wrap up that whole series. And I've got a I've got a scenario in mind for taking this a little bit further onto the future, which is taking it to a more even ridiculous conclusion than what we're seeing now starting to play out. Missy's Twitch has said in the near future. We already have brownouts in New York and stuff like that, which are coming eventually. And um I think it's going to get. I think it's going to get a lot worse. It depends on who's in, who's in charge. But if the public doesn't push back on this,
1: we're in for a rough go. I, I didn't. Uh, neglected to read the previous books in the series. Did they uh, touch on climate very much? Uh, Green Goddess does quite a bit um, because in that one, the first book is called
0: um, is called A Turn in Fortune. That's largely about the competition between the CEO and the family member who chairs the company. And uh, one's getting more credit for the company's success than the other, and that leads to a fight. It's very comical and very funny. Um, The next one is Airs on Fire, which is about a fight within the family as to who should control the company. And the third one, Green Goddess, is the company is pushed to make this transition, and yet they can't get anything done. Um, The same environmentalists who are pushing for windmills and so forth aren't letting them get permits for this kind of stuff that they're trying to do. And what you see in the energy industry is everyone, every energy company, even if their primary industry is really oil and gas, is trying to do some sort of project at least to show that they're you know they're playing the game and uh so they can't get anything done, but they do own some a small subsidiary that's called um that is engaged in fusion, and so they try to do a demonstration project on fusion to show that Uh, They're going to make some progress. There's quite a bit on fusion there. There's also that in Missy's Twitch that continues as kind of a subplot in this book as Crow Power continues to push for fusion.
1: So there's a lot of that in that book. Do you have friends in the real world that are just horrified that you're making fun of climate alarmism in your books?
0: I think I'll find out. (laughs) I think I think they're going to I'm going to learn. Now, I, I, I've got people who, who really have liked my books and they may think I've taken a turn for the worse by taking on climate alarmism so squarely. But I think I, I hope what I've done in this book is I've made it actually a, a good, reasonable case for it, that it's really overblown, that it, it doesn't make any sense, that it's all done to serve an agenda and uh, not just one agenda, but a variety of agendas. And so hopefully, I'll get them to at least think twice. And I really hope I can convince some young people to read it and reconsider some of this. They're being played. And they're being played in a very cynical game. And I think it's really sad and unfortunate, but that's where we are. I totally
1: agree. Any other points you want to make before we wrap up? Geez, I've made so many, Tom. I'm not sure yet. It's <laughs> not any more, but uh, hopefully, hopefully that covers most of the
0: groundwork. But I think I think there are so many other things in Missy's Twitch that I think people in this audience in particular will resonate to. They may not agree with every point or every point of view, but I think they'll be glad to see this represented in, in contemporary literature, because otherwise it's
1: just not. Yeah. I like the fact that you threw in a lot of humor. You don't see so much humor in the climate world. So mm-hmm.
0: no, 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 it's up. a pretty... Yeah. It's a pretty grim march by and large, but yeah, I tried to I tried to lighten uh, lighten our step a little bit with the uh, with humor and and I think a little bit of some of this deserved in my view a bit of ridicule. I think I think until we hit the point. I mean, obviously, the main vehicles for comedy in this country are not going to make any fun of this. That's taboo. But fortunately, I'm an independent uh, publisher. I can do what I want. I'm not worried about being canceled, and you know, so have at it. People don't like it. That's okay.
1: All right. I will let you go. But thank you very much, uh, John Pepper, author of Missy's Twitch. Talk to you next time.
0: Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate right. it. Okay, bye.